Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome listeners to the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. Head over to the website, have a look around and then come back and subscribe and keep listening. We have some amazingly attentive listeners and, and subscribers, Mark, and um, I love them very much. Thank you very much for listening to us. Um, how's your week been, Mark? Brendan, I've had a great weekend um, and we did a really exciting thing yesterday as a uh, as a whole practice. We... Um, we went out. Uh, we've been. We've had um, some practice turtles, um, some uh, eastern long neck turtles. That, um, as you well know, once they have a motor vehicle trauma, um, they actually take quite a long time to heal. And um, and in the past, we uh, would pass those turtles on to carers. But you know the nature of uh, wildlife groups. They um, they often people drift in and out, and we lost track of a lot of those turtles. And so we've had this. Uh, uh, almost you had a Christmas. You had a, a exactly. Christmas lunch and turtle soup. Is that what you're going to tell me? <laughs> well, I suppose you could describe their release as a bit of a mixture of a whole bunch of things, soupy wise. Um, but yeah, it was great. We um, all got together, went to a, a nice uh, uh, location with suitable habitat, and set them free. It was a real born free moment. Um, so, uh, yeah, the whole practice was pumped and um, it was very, very good. Excellent. Well, mine was probably on the opposite end of the spectrum, Mark. I put down one of two, one of two dogs of the second dog that was put down from this family and um, that I'd been seeing these dogs for a very long time until I obviously killed them and um, quite emotional, but it went very, very well, the euthanasia. And um, the interesting thing was the the cremation people that we use, uh, we swapped over to recently are fantastic and they provide some amazing little um, trinkets and, and, and boxes and urns, etc., to put the ashes in, including a whole range of rings and um, blown glass mark i don't know whether you've seen these little blown glass pendants and rings that you can have as a as a pendant or a necklace that has the ashes um threaded into it or woven into it just to say blow the glass mark and the um it was quite interesting this one because the previous dog that i'd put down not long ago within a month um was made into one of these little um rings that um when i put down the second dog and and last surviving dog of the family um yesterday um the owner had put the little ring on the collar of the other dog so it was carrying around the um ashes of its little mate so she was having a similar thing done with the the dog that we euthanized yesterday so it'll be interesting to see what she does with it i'm a little bit reluctant mark to tell Annie, my wife, about this because I expect that she'd do the same with me and that she'd wear it as a pendant and she'd say, look, you were a chain around my neck during life and you still are, um, is what she'll be saying <laughs> as she carries around little bits of me in a glass bead or pendant mark. But, yeah, they do look um, quite 
quite good in, um, and quite beautiful, some of these little pendants and, and trinkets that they do. You know, it's similar. I don't know whether you do the uh, – I think you do, mate. You do the um, the paw prints and all those sorts of things for clients as well in clay. Do you do that type we do. of thing? We, we try to provide as many options for people to have that uh, – you know, to deal with their grief, to have that memento, to um, and and they are they are a little bit. I don't know. Sometimes I'm talking to clients, and it feels a little bit limited the options that they can have to um, to remember their pet pie. And so, having a, an additional one, and particularly one like that, uh, that's um, both beautiful and and um, and you know holds a, a suitable reminder. Um, that's a great extra thing. Our, our, our wonderful service doesn't offer that yet, but we might suggest it to them, Brendan. Yes, well, one of my newest members of our staff, um, she, Laura, she manages to um, often clip off a little bit of the fur um, from the cats and the dogs and gives it to them as well in a little little Ziploc bag, and a lot of people appreciate that. And I don't know what they end up doing them with a little bit of fur from them, but they, um, they often... Um, put them into all sorts of um, places and situations. I've even heard of some people incorporating them into a painting mark. Have wow. you heard of that? Where they stick little bits of fur on a on a on a little um little um I don't know, what what would you call it? abstract, I suppose, heart um, painting or some sort of construction for them. So there you go. So, yes, yeah, so it was death week, but it was, in a way, it was a, a good death week because it was a very agitated little old doggy and um, little Jack Russell and, um, yeah, it went went perfect, the actual euthanasia, and um, didn't even flinch when I even slid, slid that little needle in there and the owner was quite, quite... Um, quite surprised at how well it went even though she went through the same process a couple of weeks ago yeah so that was that was that was the end of my week mark and um i'm going to jump into our first news story because i think it's a cracker mark it's the camel beauty pageants it's the world of the million dollar beauty pageants for camels and um, i knew a little bit about this from one of those books that i reviewed um, many many podcasts ago the camel vet and um, i think it's a excellent little book um, relating to our industry, Mark, and we need to do a few more reviews. Um, and this is about the, the world of those um, camel camel beauty pageants, which um, uh, happen in um, the Middle East, especially in Saudi Arabia. And interest in these camel beauty competitions has grown over the, since the, um, well, the 20th century. But it's amazing the money that's in, in these. It's around $45 million, the prize pool, Mark, for one of these, with each, each winner in the six categories gets around about $7.5 million Australian, along with the crown of Miss Camel for the winners. But um, the thing that I really um, loved about this is that, that the, the shenanigans, Mark, that people get up to and the cheating that, that happens there. And early this year, Mark, 12 camels were disqualified from a camel beauty pageant in Saudi Arabia after receiving Botox injections to improve the look of their lips and their noses. So um, I love that. I love that. Was, um, it was excellent. But um, I'll tell you what, there's some pretty pretty damn good-looking camels looking at these pictures there, Mark. Um, and they judge them on all sorts of things, the obvious ones, the, the hump, the head, the neck, and the coat colour, etc. And um, 
you know i think they, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of um tradition and a lot of um superstition i think with the way they prepare them as well because what they do before the contest is they house them away from the sun and they feed, feed them up mark on milk wheat honey and dates before the competition um, so I think they give them the dates to sort of make their little date a bit perkier um, when they're being viewed, Mark, for the competition. So, yeah. So that's my first story, Mark, um, camel camel beauty pageant. How long do you think it'll take, Brendan, before um, the camels are bred for several generations and uh, there's, um, you know, hip dysplasia and brachycephalica that is winning the... Um, yes. <laughs> Brachycephalic camels. There must be a name for the. What is it for the? Uh, what um, the 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 um, the um, the the look? What is it? What, what do you call it? The bitchy, lazy look, or whatever. <laughs> What's it called with the with the lips? Um, um, from using too much Botox. Yeah, um, is what they'll be saying with them. But yes, has something to do with trouts, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. <laughs> So, yes, I don't think it will be too long at all, Mark. It's probably already happening by the sound of it with all the things they're getting up to with trying to. But when you consider the amount of money that's up for grabs there, gee, um, I'm not surprised that they inject a little bit of Botox here and there at both ends of the camel. What's your which, which first leads story, Mark? And a beautiful story yes. on to my first topic, which is, um, uh, you know, a Mother Nature Network article uh, that um, that suggests that many veterinarians have ethical qualms about what some pet owners ask them to do. Now, uh, for those of us that are in the industry, this sort of um, article comes as no surprise. I, I doubt whether there's a single veterinarian who um, hasn't had the time where they've had uh, concerns about um, about the requests that are put to them by some pet owners. Um, and um, and this article talks about uh, you know the the um, wonderful pluses of a veterinary career, the the professional life of a vet, the wonderful things that we can do. And you talked about some of them in your introduction, Brendan. Um, but um, but it also talks about. Uh, moral distress amongst veterinarians, how um, how our understanding of the medical conditions that animals have and the uh, ethical framework that we have, um, that sometimes those things may not necessarily uh, be exactly the same for our clients. And um, that can lead to um, really difficult positions. And obviously, um, the, the classic one is the... Um, the inappropriate euthanasia, uh, you know, a convenience euthanasia, um, and these sorts of questions um, can be uh, well. Um, they can affect uh, the the perception of the veterinarians, uh, the outlook of that veterinarian on the whole of society. Um, so, uh, and there's even a suggestion in this article that um, that behaviour like that, ethical conflict, um, may feed into the the whole cycle of um, uh, failure of wellness and in some certain circumstances even the suicide rate that um, uh, afflicts our profession. So so I, I, um, I think that um, 
the other thing that it, this article suggested is that not many veterinarians get professional help. Um, that uh, I know that we're a um, self-contained profession where uh, we're all a bit maverick. We like to deal with things on our own in our own way, um, and we're not very, very good at all at singing out and saying, "I'm not coping, and I need some help." Um, and I think we've really got to cultivate that in our profession. That we're all often going through the same things, and we don't have to reinvent the wheel and putting your hand up and saying this is a little bit difficult at the moment, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And, uh, yeah, um, and the whole framework of compassionate practice, Brendan, that whole practice is aware of this and um, and work to make sure that the well-being of the animal comes first and that the veterinarians work together to look after the animals and each other. Yes, and it's a real challenge, isn't it, for, for new graduates with with all those aspects because you get very little as you, as you mentioned or if any training on on those types of aspects especially if you have a really pushy client that comes in and and you're a new graduate lacking lacking confidence and you know your medicine and your surgery and yet you have a client there that's um trying to bully you or tell you the way to approach the case it can be can take a while before you gain that confidence in order to be able to 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 be able to state the the correct thing and and to be confident in your medicine and, and um, your approach to the cases there, Mark. Um, you know, I'd, I'd remember many cases similar to that with new graduates that I've seen going through, and and it often knocks them for six marks, even if it's even if it's something as simple as a, a client that wanders in with an itchy dog and they pop them on the consult room table and there's fleas jumping everywhere, mm. and they the first thing the client says is, oh, "My dog's itching, but it doesn't have fleas," and they're quite adamant it's not fleas, and um, you have a new graduate trying to deal with that situation. They know everything about what um, parasiticides to use to treat the fleas, but um, trying to deal with that client and, and convince them and explain to them the fact that it is a flea bite allergy can be a real challenge for them. So I think that's something that we have to really concentrate on is when you know if you're mentoring um, some of the new graduates, and it's uh, for those new graduates listening, it's um, they're the things you need to really really concentrate on when you're out there and have seen practice um, before you graduate. Look at how the vets are dealing with the client, um, the client um, veterinarian um, relationship is what, is what you need to really study. You'll learn about um, horse vetting if you're with a horse vet, so don't worry about the medicine and the surgery, but, but try and concentrate on watching the interactions and the interpersonal aspects and the skills that are that are shown or, 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 sh- or being shown off by the veterinarian there. So that's what I that's what I do. But yeah, good story, Mark. Very good story. Mine's mine's not quite as deep as yours, and it's um, can dogs tell time, Mark. Or can animals tell time? Is my last little news story, and um, it was a quite a um, humorous little one. It's just talking about how dogs owners um, tend to know when it's feed time, don't they? And they start getting a bit antsy and hassling you. And my two pooches certainly do that. Um, but um, dogs can't read clocks, as the article talks about. But can do they have a concept of time? And it relates back to a a study that was done um, in nature neuroscience, where researchers set up a treadmill with mice in a virtual reality environment. And the mice learned to run down a hallway in in the reality scene to a doorway. And after about six seconds, the door opened and the mouse could go down the hallway and get a reward. And after several training sessions, 
the door was made invisible, yet the mouse still waited several seconds or six seconds in the same spot before racing down. So the important point here the researchers thought was that the mouse doesn't know when the door is open or closed because it's invisible, but the only way they can solve the task is by using the brain's internal sense of time. So their thought was that there is a there is a natural, um, the neurons do know what time is in, in animals, as, as we certainly do. And then it goes on to talk a little bit about dogs and their sense of smell and that um, that smell um, is used as a sense for time as well um, in that if an owner has gone away, slowly their smell will dissipate and they can perhaps use that as a method of, of sensing when it's time for the owner to come back because they can't smell them anymore, Mark. So although... Those of us with more BO than other people may, um, it may be a bit confusing for their dogs, Mark. So that's, um, I often find, um, Brendan, we've got some clients that take this topic very, very seriously and, um, actually conduct experiments of their own, like, um, the dog, you know, greets them at the same time each afternoon when they come home. So they'll, um, they made the assumption that the dog was hearing the car and the characteristic noises of the engine of their vehicle. So they'd park. Away and then walk the last little bit home to see if the dog still knew they were coming. And I've got to say, the dog did. Um, but, I, oh. but I agree with you that, um, that they're, I don't know that they'll have a rough idea of the time. They don't know the precise moment, but they're alert. You know, in the afternoon, someone's going to come home, but then all their other senses, sense of smell, sense of hearing, not so much. I don't think the vision plays such a critical role, um, but they're quite, you know, skewed into those very subtle um, sensory bits of information so they know you're about when you're nearby. Yes, they certainly do. And my doggies, apparently, and I can hear them as soon as I drive up the driveway. Um, they go a bit silly and start to, they're often, they might be sitting in their little little beds inside, but um, any of the girls let them out straight away because they run up and down are quite excited when I, when I get home after a long day at work, and I think they just like to smell all those little critters that have been on my, on or near me um, when I get in. What's your last story, mate? And the last story I have is a um, is one that I'm really excited about because um, it uh, you know I, I I'm enjoying life. I love being here, Brendan, um, uh, and um, and it's ticking away, and the the, the uh, concept of my mortality plays on my mind a little bit. Um, but this article uh, suggests that scientists have discovered a drug cocktail that doubles the lifespan of some animals, and um, and so they've uh, what they, these haven't been these uh, uh, magical combinations of uh, various chemicals have not been tested on humans yet. I have no doubt they'd have a um a, a a ready, um, the scientists in Singapore who concocted this brew of drugs would have a ready uh, slew of volunteers, um, but the species they have conducted it on uh, as are as varied as various nematode worms um, and various arthropods, including uh, fruit flies. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, they, uh, they've been able to dramatically extend the life expectancy of these people. Um, so, and this this uh, uh, has a, I suppose, a real world implication in that um, so much of our health spending 
um, is actually spent in the last few years of people's lives when their quality of life, um, you know, starts to tail off before their eventual demise. If we can find a way that we can um, live healthier for longer and not have to uh, put so much of our resources into age-related diseases like arthritis and cardiovascular disease, various cancers and um, neurological disease like Alzheimer's disease, then, um, you know, things are going to be better for the world. Absolutely. And I did notice that your skin was looking quite youthful recently, Mark, so I don't know whether you've been pumping your self through full of this uh rifampicin and sorafor and metformin and allantoin cocktail or whether it's the botox um camel injections that you've been using mark which one is it or is it both no no i'm on to you know the blood of young people brendan <laughs> that'd be right why don't you go for blood of older people because <laughs> maybe they're they're living longer so there's something good about their blood why does everybody go for the blood of young people <laughs> tell me that well, well just a I can't tell you. Well, I don't want to be <laughs> old people. I want to be like young yes. people. <laughs> okay, let's jump into our new story, our main story, Mark, our main story, <laughs> um, unless you have actually – we must do another review shortly, so we will, we promise. Um, it is – it's a topic we have touched on a couple of times before, Mark, but we haven't done it in a specific episode as, as the main topic, and that is adrenal gland disease in ferrets because we do have a fair number of people emailing us about this particular topic and, and because they find it of interest and um, I think it's good to have it as a as a summary in one episode mark so that's what we're going to rip through today aren't we mark so do you want to kick it off and, and talk about what is it what exactly is adrenal gland disease in ferret well I think I'll start Brendan by saying what it is not um, and um, it is uh, commonly the case that um, because it gets called adrenal gland disease and um, that overlaps with our, uh, you know, the probably the more common thing we see in um, dogs and cats is Cushing's disease or hyperadrenocorticism. Um, that's not the nature of the disease in uh, ferrets. Um, the disease in ferrets does not relate to an increase, the characteristic of the disease is not an increase in circulating cortisol. Um, and there are ferrets that do have um, hyperadrenocorticism, um, but it does, that circulating, increase in circulating cortisol does not produce the same um, clinical signs or severity as it does in other species. Um, but the disease we're interested in today, uh, adrenal gland disease, is um, the result of uh, the um, of a benign tumour, an adenoma of the adrenal gland, which produces sex steroids, um, and the complications from those uh, high circulating levels of sex steroids produces a constel uh, produces a characteristic syndrome, which we know as adrenal disease. Yes, and those signs classically are. Couple, there are two or three, aren't they, Mark? The main ones are, well, we talk about it as the bald ferret look, don't we? And that's um, exactly that. And traditionally and classically, it's the trunk. So, and it's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it, Mark, for the majority of these that the, the feet or the legs do not have fur or hair loss. And it's primarily on that trunk 
region and it starts off as a bit of a sparse coat there and it develops to a full-blown full-blown bald ferret look on the trunk mark um, over time if if it's not addressed with them um, the other the other signs early on with some of the subtle ones can be what I usually describe as a rat tail look in that they get a sparse looking fur or hair covering on the tail as well so skin change is the number one that we see and in the females we we see an obvious enlarged vulva in a fair percentage of them with the adrenal gland disease with them there are a couple of other signs that that there's a little bit of query and, and a bit of question about whether or not we do see them and i'd like your your thoughts on whether you think it's a valid clinical sign for this condition mark and that is um, pruritus and you'll see in some of the textbooks that it's still reported as been that you will get an itchy ferret um, with with adrenal gland disease and the other one is behavior changes and perhaps that's related to the pruritus as well so this may be a ferret that that wasn't particularly bitey that ends up being bitey or vice versa um, mark what's your thought on on those signs and are there some other signs that you'd classically think about with a ferret that has adrenal gland disease that comes into your clinic well in our experience the the difficulty with these ferrets and we'll probably talk about this later is the comorbidity so it is very difficult to you know isolate some of those clinical signs but but we do not see typically um, the uh, the occurrence of itchiness in these ferrets they're often um, they're often hairless without um, traumatizing themselves significantly we do see changes in behavior um, and they're often quite subtle and Crikeys, it comes as no surprise that if they have high circulating levels of, um, of uh, the sex steroids, um, then they're likely to have uh, changes in behaviour. I don't want to get into any arguments about um, how that might happen in other species like humans, but definitely we um, see uh, changes in behaviour because of those sex steroids and, um, and some of those things that the clients observe, often very subtle things like levels of activity, um, you know, that could well be a real thing. Um, we do see some of our uh, um, adrenal gland ferrets, um, they have a, um, weakness. They tend to be a little bit less, um, you know, um, uh, strong in their back legs and um, in particular in their back legs. And um, so that's something that sort of alerts us to the possibility. Um, and occasionally in male ferrets, we will have um, trouble urinating as the sex steroids change the characteristics of the uh, urinary tract. Maybe the, the uh, prostate gland um, develops a degree of megaly um, and they're not urinating in the normal fashion or maybe even they're dribbling a little bit of blood, Brendan. Yes, yes. No, some great points there. And I and I think the the point about the comorbidities, always with a ferret, if you see one condition in a ferret, always look for another condition because yeah, they they like to collect diseases, don't they, ferrets? Um and it's a bit like skin problems in ferrets. I always call them the boxer of the skin of the um, unusual pet world. So if you see a skin lesion on a ferret, worry about it and get it off because often they can be something 
a bit different or even even nasty with them, yeah. So, yeah, so there's some of the signs, so the classic skin signs, the vulval changes in the girls, um, plus or minus those other ones you've mentioned. And, and, I, and I agree with you, Mark, about the pruritus, even though traditionally it's been, been reported and it still is in some of the textbooks that they're often itchy, um, I don't think that's a, a classic feature for this particular condition in, in this species. So how does it occur, Mark? What's the what's the whole process of, of of or the theories behind why or how they get these adrenal tumours? And they are theories, Brennan, and you know how I love theories. That's sort of like one of the cornerstones of science, isn't it? Um, um, but we must note here that there is still a lot of research ongoing in this area, and uh, and it uh, and it does appear our understanding of why these benign tumours develop is um, is, uh, is still progressing. So the, the general, I suppose, theory um, is, the, is that um, in the wild ancestors, the various mustelids in the wild that gave rise to the domestic ferret, um, they live in an environment where there is a pronounced seasonality with fairly significant temperature changes and pronounced changes in diurnal length um, and that uh, these uh, very seasonal changes in the wild forebears um, led to a circumstance where um, there's a fairly rigorous um, uh, uh, process of endocrine stimulation um, to allow reproduction each year. Now, in uh, the domestic ferret, which is in captivity, particularly those ferrets that, uh, um, for example, the Marshall Farm ferrets in the US, which are desexed at a very, very young age, they miss out on a whole range of priming of the endocrine system uh, because they don't have the gonads at an early age. And then they don't necessarily get exposed to the same um, patterns of, uh, of temperature change and day length, which might further feedback into that uh, endocrine development. And, um, and as a consequence, they, uh, the, the unusual changes in their hormone system predispose them to um, these tumours in the, um, the small number of cells that are in the adrenal gland um, that, uh, that also secrete, um, in addition to the usual gonads, the uh, sex steroids. What a fantastic little summary there, Mark. Yes. So I think the breeding one, yeah, is a real key point for some of these uh, US farm bred ones, as you mentioned, because they basically pump them out, don't they? Um, lots and lots of ferrets here. And when you look at the differences between the sizes and the just general look of the ferrets uh, in different countries, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Um, the, the size differences, for instance, with the Australian ferrets that we have here compared with the US ferrets. Um, and, and I think that whole aspect of in, inbreeding um, has a lot to play with it as well, Mark. Um, um, the photo period aspect, what do you recommend to clients as far as um, keeping their ferrets um, for potentially avoiding this condition in them in relationship to exposure to natural light and photo period? Mark? Well, they, it's very difficult. This is a really difficult thing and there are a number of other species who benefit from uh, whose health can benefit from appropriate management of, uh, of photo period of the diurnal cycle of light. Um, but um, but I, 
I generally, generally find it very hard to convince clients to, um, you know, make those changes. The key thing I suppose we um, ask them to do is avoid excessively long days. We, you know, the classic thing is that uh, the ferrets do have, the, they might be indoor ferrets, they have exposure to daylight, and then people come home and have the lights on um, for, you know, if they're watching the sort of shows on TV that you like, Brendan, they might be up till midnight um, and have the lights on and the ferrets can still be active. And um, and those aberrations to the normal sort of photo period are, in my opinion, often a little bit delicate. So we try and avoid those. Yes, absolutely. So we have a ferret that comes in. How do we diagnose it or we, 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 we confirm that it does have the adrenal gland disease? And, and I'll, I'll take a couple of them first, Mark, and you can jump in with the things I forget about. And that's the obvious ones, the signs and the history. So it may be a ferret that was desexed at a young age. And, and we'll talk about the prevention bit and our recommendations with desexing age um, later on in this little podcast. Um, so it's looking for those classic signs we spoke about. And then then it is confirming it. And there's several different ways to confirm it. Um, there's an adrenal panel that is virtually universal as far as we um, the laboratories that do run the adrenal panels. Um, initially, you had to really, um, it was a bit of a struggle for some of the labs in certain countries, including here in Australia, to run the adrenal panel. And that is a panel of the adrenal, of the sex hormones, isn't it, Mark? Um, the androgens and the, um, um, so estrogen, um, hydro, there's three, isn't there? I'm I can to, tell I'm you, I, 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 I don't have them committed to memory, but I did look them up in preparation. It's estradiol, androstenedione, and 17-hydroxyprogesterone. Yes, they're the three. So that's the adrenal panel for ferrets and the only hassle with that is that it's not an inexpensive test and I do find that occasionally when I've sent that test off that I get a, an equivocal result with it. Um, so often it's fairly obvious that you get a, a massive change with with um, outside the normal ranges um, with one or more of those with, with, with um, the patient and then it's virtually diagno um, diagnostic for that condition but I have had the odd case where it's um, non-diagnostic even with that particular test. I mean, if you do get what a female ferret that comes in that's um, definitely been desexed and um, and it has a enlargement of that vulva that's occurred over time and it's um, losing fur, then um, you're highly and it's a middle age or, or older, then um, you're highly suspicious that it will be an adrenal gland disease ferret. Um, what's the other methods, Mark? Um, or a couple of the other methods that you can use to um, complete the. Um, confirm the diagnosis of this condition in our little ferret? Well, um, there are a couple of things that you can do that I'm not very good at, Brendan. Um, the first one uh, is the use of uh, um, ultrasonography to uh, have a, actually have a look at the adrenal glands and, um, and identify if there's a mass in there in a patient that has the... the um, the requisite clinical signs. Um, and, um, and certainly uh, there are a number of um, clinicians who are adept enough at ultrasound to um, identify those adrenal tumours. Um, they uh, often result, you know, there's often detectable masses um, that, are, that enlarge the adrenal glands to four, more than four or six times their usual size and um, and uh, and so that is definitely something that can be identified. I've got to say that in my hands, 
um, probably much more because I'm no good with ultrasound than anything else, but I don't um, have much success with that. And I've had a go at a few of them because um, they, because of exactly as you said, the um, adrenal panel is a great test, but there is that very small percentage of, um, of ferrets who give you an equivocal result despite the um, the appropriate um, history and clinical signs. And of course, uh, while we're talking about ultrasound, there are uh, and we're trying to identify the the um, the changes to the adrenal tissue. More advanced imaging is uh, sometimes used in particular university or research settings where CT can show the the the, uh, the changes in the adrenal gland. Um, but the one other one that we've used is some um, exploratory laparotomy in a patient uh, that we're considering. Um, surgically removing the tumour, um, opening up and having a look to see whether it's there um, and then removing it if it is, is uh, also a useful diagnostic test. Yes. Well, I don't think you're a particularly poor ultrasonographer, Mark, because those little adrenal glands in ferrets are quite small, even the enlarged ones with adrenal disease. And off the top of my head, I think the, the normal size of them is three three millimetres by five or seven millimetres, something like that. Um, so they're, they're very tiny. So I tend to send all my ones off that I'm going to have ultrasound done on to one particular person that who's very good at ultrasound, Mark, and they have a very good machine, but they are an excellent ultrasonographer. And that's the only person I tend to trust if I'm wanting to diagnose that way, Mark. So I think it is a real challenge with that, yeah. And the other techniques, yeah, getting in there, having a look, um, and diagnosing it that way. But I suppose there is one other method of the diagnosis, and that's a treatment trial, isn't it, Mark? And we, we'll get on, and that's using the implant, um, the Desloran implant, the Supralorin implant. So perhaps if we jump on to treatment options for it. So, um, and before we chat about that, I, I, I'm just for those of you who don't deal with ferrets very often, just realising that this is typically a slow, progressive disease, isn't it, Mark? They're not going to die. It's not, not an emergency. that They won't die tomorrow with this disease, but they may die down the track. And, yes, it can metastasize to other organs, and that certainly has been well reported to do so. But a lot of the ferrets that have adrenal gland disease, that, that particular neoplasm sits there and it causes these clinical signs but the animal may die from another condition many months or years down the track so treatment options mark so what's the gold standard and what's the other options um, for treating these cases well i suppose the gold standard has to always be surgery but i'd, I'd be you know if i was answering this question um uh you know five or ten years ago it would have been clearly get in there and, and chop the tumour out at a relatively early stage. While I think the majority of them are benign, there certainly are um, uh, malignant forms of the tumours that cause this problem and they are known to metastasize. Um, so getting in early and chopping them out would uh, would be the gold standard. But um, I have, um, have uh, um, probably leaned more towards um, uh, medical treatment um, now that we've got the resources of things like the uh, Deslorelin implant um, that just has, uh, um, in terms of maintaining that quality of life for as long as we probably would with um, with surgery. And because we often have those superimposed comorbidities, um, I don't think uh, I'd at this stage be putting my hand up to say, 
um, surgery comes out on top. There are two other options as well. Um, I don't, I always offer it to our clients, but um, it's not something that I um, strongly recommend, but it, it is a complicated disease that sometimes um, doesn't respond as well as we would like because of those comorbidities that we haven't identified. And so it's never unreasonable to discuss humane euthanasia with clients. Um, and as you said, Brendan, it's the sort of disease that um, is slowly progressive and it is likely to lead to increasing metabolic derangements over time, which affect quality of life, but it is slow and it's likely um, to go for, um, for you know, if the ferret's likely to survive for a few years after a diagnosis. Um, uh, so it's not unreasonable to talk about benign neglect as a potential treatment option with these guys. Yes, absolutely. And guess what? I'd be very similar with you with the approach to the surgical cases in that I rarely um, suggest that these days. And I think the other aspect to that is, uh, um, I don't know about you, but a fair number of these patients that I'm seeing are, are aged animals as well when they're presenting. So they're at least three or four. Um, and if I have a ferret that's five or six that presents with adrenal gland disease, then I'm thinking, um, is it, um, I'm weighing up the costs and the risks of potentially doing that surgery. And it's not a simple surgery, even if you go along with the, the, well, and, and jump into the surgeries, there's a couple of options or a few options, isn't there, Mark, with, with the actual technique. One is the ideal removing that adrenal gland completely. The other one is just debulking it um, and, and removing most of the tumour and, and not trying to be heroic, um, especially if we've got major vessels involved, which we have, um, that you, we might um, nick and then we have a bleed out there. So, yeah, a large percentage of these, um, I am now just recommending the, the um, hormonal implants with the mark, yes. Um, with the implants, what's the story of those, Mark? Um, how often do you... Do you use that implant how quickly will you see a response to the treatment as far as the clinical signs and how often are you repeating the implant geez they're good questions <laughs> brendan um the uh the, our usual plan um so the implants in australia they come in uh the six month and 12 month versions those versions are labeled with that time frame because that's the time frame that they're um, most clinically likely to be effective in the dog. Um, and, um, and so uh, we would probably be using the 12-month ones and using them annually. Um, and, uh, and generally that gets us uh, um, uh, the best result with our ferrets. When we do put them in, the first time we put them in, um, the, there is a um, a fair bit of uh, literature, anecdotal literature, to suggest that, um, that because the uh, Desloran is a, um, a uh, uh, it's an agonist. Is it a super? I can't remember the the uh, the actual technical class of agonists it belongs to, but um, it uh, it does in the first instance stimulate an increase in the. Uh, secretion for a day or so before there's a massive feedback loop that shuts down secretion. Um, and so generally we're noticing a difference in the subtle signs, behaviour and whatnot, um, within uh, five to seven days. And hair regrowth uh, can start shortly after that, Brendan. Oh, 
Guess what? I was on mute <laughs> there again, as usual. Um, yes. So we, we, I do see that very few side effects with the use of these implant, and that's the other the other comment I always make to clients about this, as far as like, what's the risk of putting this implant in there? And apart from the odd case where they are a little bit flat for that first day or two um, of putting the implant in, I don't think I've ever seen any anything more than just a, that um, slight lethargy for a few days, Mark, and you may want to comment on that in a sec. But yeah, the implants I tend to use are the smaller ones, the, the 4.7, I think it is, um, implant with them. Um, they are registered for use in the USA um, in ferrets for one year um, for this particular condition. Interestingly enough, the implants um, from Verbac um, is an Australian company yet it's not registered for use um, in Australia in, in ferrets, Mark, because I don't think they've gone to the expense of registering it for the use in ferrets because they won't get their money back for the cost of registering it. So it's an off-label use in, in many countries apart from the USA. Um, um, I think the studies that were done on the use of it showed that on average it, it, it would work for at least 12 months um, in in suppressing um, the signs um, and potentially up to two or two and a half years with some cases, Mark. So my general thoughts with clients and recommendations for their, for their little pet ferret is to um, revisit the animal at least um, six monthly but definitely 12 months later. And if there's no signs of the of the signs, the clinical signs coming back, Mark, the fur um, loss and, and um, vulval swelling in the females, etc., or, or behavioural changes, um, lethargy, um, then I say to them, look, come back in six months or so. And I've had some where I don't need to replant, um, re-implant for at least um, one and a half or two years, Mark. So I just play it by ear um, with with each individual animal, Mark, and, and just go from there. Um, do you tend to just routinely implant again every every? Yeah, I would say that we do, and um, and I think that's probably more um, the, the, you know, I have read the, the uh, some of the reports that suggest that you can get out to um, uh, maybe a couple of years uh, with these implants, and um, uh, but we're Pretty, we like to get in and um, and particularly because most of the clients that are prepared to go down this path are highly dedicated and um, don't necessarily want to see those signs come back. We're probably in the majority of cases doing them um, routinely at every 12 months. Yes, yes. And do you have any, any more major side effects apart from perhaps being a little bit off colour for a few days after the initial. No, I was. I, I mentioned that um, that that's a, a very yes. common thing when you read about these implants. The talk of side effects and complication, but um, our experience has been just like yours, Brendan. The I think that the in in the the nature of using off label um, medication and our general caution with hormones, we've probably been a little bit. We may well have overstated the um, the 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 potential for uh, those negative effects, particularly over the first week, because it's not something that we would routinely see at all. Yes. Well, I agree. I agree totally with you, Mark. And the good thing, I think, with it is um, with the implant too, it's a, it is a very cost-effective um, way of controlling the signs at least and, and perhaps um, um, for our listeners, it doesn't get rid of the, the neoplasm, doesn't get rid of the tumour there, but it certainly gets rid of the clinical signs and it may shrink down that um, 
tumor a little bit, but it is not a, a it's it's a control, isn't it, Mark? Rather than a treatment, I suppose. Um, with it, so with these older animals, it may be that they only need one or two of those implants. Um, to to make to let them last for the rest of their life with it. Yeah. Um, the other prevention aspect is what's your recommendations? You did mention earlier about the early desexin and the link of the early desexin with adrenal gland disease. So, what's your thoughts and recommendation to clients if they bring in a a healthy strapping young male or female ferret that's only three or four months of age and they're asking about desexin their ferret? Well, as we well know, there's potential for uh, serious health issues to arise if uh, um, uh, particularly female ferrets are left uh, entire um, and allowed to get into that um, uh, problem, the problems with uh, hyperestrogenism um, as they stay in season. So we want to make sure they do get desexed, but we want them to go through all the the uh, pre-pubertal effects of uh, the developing sex steroids and the gonads. Um, and so uh, we are generally recommending uh, getting them done precisely at that sort of six-month mark. Let them go through the whole um, developmental stage. Let the uh, adrenal gland be exposed to um, various uh, uh, concentrations of the sex steroids as the ferrets go uh, get up to puberty but desex them before they uh, uh, become reproductively active yes guess what we do the same we do the same we, we recommend at least desexing them um, not until at least um, six months of age although I am starting to consider the implants um, with those younger ferrets and then thinking about the surgical desexing of them um, at a later stage say for example 18 months of age that we um, go in there and surgically desex them and I think there are some clinics aren't there Mark that um, don't do the surgical desexing at all and they just go with the implants um, every year so um, however i don't know if there's any research out there showing whether or not there's any increased incidence of complications, for example, pyometra it's, um, with them. Have you heard anything? No, I think, um, as you said, I think that's been a relatively recent thing that um, that people are contemplating not desexing them at all and just uh, um, starting them on uh, the implants at a, a, a pubertal age and keeping them on them for the rest of their life. Um, I suspect over the next 10 years we'll build up a bank of information about the if there is any, what uh, negative effects there are. There was one other, um, the, the, um, there is talk, Brendan, about the melatonin implants. Um, do you have any uh, um, inside knowledge about the use of those implants in this disease? Yeah, I, I think there was a, a big push on the potential value of those um, probably a couple of years or so ago um, that they may they may help with the prevention of this condition or the control of it but as far as I know um, the people have, who have been using them and I think it's all anecdotal is that it that wasn't as um, promising as what they thought Mark but um, yeah I, I haven't seen any actual published um, information on that confirming that or not but that's my general thoughts on it and I haven't heard much on the ferret grapevine about whether or not um, um, it's still in vogue um, that particular modality. Well I think uh, the, un the only thing there's no I don't think there's any hard and fast evidence that um, that uh, that it does that it does any better than the desirelin and I think there is the risk with um, 
uh, melatonin that um, because of that whole comorbidity thing and because melatonin uh, interacts with glucose metabolism to um, substantially uh, um, aggravate hypoglycemia and if you've got a ferret that has insulinoma one of the common comorbidities for this disease then they can get into serious trouble so i think you're right it's gone a bit out of vogue yes well i think we've covered that quite well and the only other thing we're left to do mark apart from say goodbye and thanks for listening to the end is is explain why the title of this episode is called Alcatraz, Mark. What I was. It was a that? question that I had, had. I was going to ask you after at the end, as you often explain the complex, cryptic nature of our titles. Well, it relates back to a very famous ferret that I treated many, many years ago, and it, it had an, another name before Alcatraz, and um, the client was was a bit challenged and had some some um, um, health issues and um, she used to talk to her ferret every day, used to talk to her ferret every day and she travelled very long distances to bring her ferret to see me on public transport market. So she'd take a couple of hours or so to, to get to the clinic to see me, lovely person, and um, was incredibly devoted to her ferret and it had multiple problems being a ferret. It has several conditions happening at once. I think it had insulinoma and it may have even had a dream gland disease and a couple of other things happening so we struggled to keep it alive and um, I was getting to the stage of recommending euthanasia for it and quality of the life discussions with her several times um, and she actually ended up making the decision herself and I was getting almost to the point of potentially giving her a really hard word on it and 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 it's I've probably only done it half a dozen times over my career where I've physically taken an animal off a client um, um, to, to have it euthanized because of welfare issues, but I was getting close with that animal. But she came in um, when it was youth, eventually euthanized on that day and said to me, well, I, um, I, I, for the life of me, I just can't remember off the top of my head the original name of the ferret, but let's call it Boris. Um, so, And she said to me, well, Boris has been talking to me and I've been talking to Boris, as she had been for, for many years, and she was quite upset when she came in. And she said, well, Boris isn't talking to me anymore because um, Boris um, told me last night he said to me, I don't want to be called Boris anymore. Um, and he, and she put on this very sort of um, horror sort of um, voice and said, Boris said to me, call me Alcatraz. Um, so Boris wanted to be called Alcatraz from then onwards. Um, and she said, oh, okay, Boris, um, I won't call you Boris anymore. I'll call you Alcatraz. And at that point, she decided that maybe Boris slash Alcatraz um, – didn't have very good quality life and she brought Alcatraz in um, and we euthanized Alcatraz so she actually made the decision or maybe Boris or Alcatraz did that um, he wasn't um, quite fit for this world anymore so that's where we get the title Alcatraz mark for this podcast um, relating to a, a very beloved client um, who um, who loved Boris slash Alcatraz so thanks for listening and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com 
where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.